0: what's going on friends this is the changelog thanks for tuning in if this is your first time here subscribe at changelog.fm if this is your millionth time listening hey we love you thank you so much for tuning in all these years if you haven't yet check out changelog plus plus that is our membership you can skip the ads and support us directly check it out at changelog.com slash plus Today we are joined once again by the mad scientist himself, Faraz Dj You may know Faraz from GS Party and other parts of the internet, but today we're talking with him about his newest project called Socket, the next big thing in the fight to secure and protect the open source supply chain. While working on the front lines of open source, Faraz and team have witnessed firsthand how supply chain attacks have swept across the software community and have damaged the trust in open source. Socket turns the problem of securing open source software on his head and asks, what if we assume all open source software may be malicious? So they built a system that proactively detects indicators of compromised open source packages and brings that awareness to teams in real time. Today with Faraz, we cover the whys, the hows, and what's next for this very ambitious, and very much need a project. Big thanks to our friends and our partners at Fastly for having our back, our CDM back that is, our pods, our assets, everything is Fast globally. Fast is in their name and that's what they do. Check them out at Fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. Build better software faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. That number includes us. Here's the absolute easiest way to try Sentry right now. You don't have to do anything. Just go to try.sentry-demo.com. That is an open sandbox with data that refreshes every time you refresh or every 10 minutes, something like that. But long story short, that's the easiest way to try Sentry right now. No installation. No whatsoever. That dashboard is the exact dashboard we see every time we log into Sentry. And of course, our listeners get a deal. They get the team plan for free for three months. All you got to do is go to Sentry.io and use the code changelog when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code changelog.
1: All right, we are joined by JS Party regular, the mad scientist himself. It's Feroz. What's up, Feroz? Thanks for joining us on the ChangeLog. Hey, guys. It's great
2: to be here. It is. Uh, it's good to have you here,
0: Feroz. I've been enjoying just, I guess, knowing you and paying attention to your mad science over the years. <laughs>
2: Thanks. Yeah, I know. I love, I love coming on ChangeLog and JS Party and sharing whatever um, I'm working on. I always launch my things by talking to you guys. It seems like
1: it's a good way to do it. We appreciate that. Yeah, we like it. You like it. I think we met you all the way back in 2016, if this episode is to be believed. Called Mad Science, Web Torrent and Web RTC. That means we've known each other for gosh six years.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been fun uh, being on JS Party. I don't remember when I joined, but yeah, whenever we do those episodes, it's always a good time. And you know, there's always stuff to talk about in JavaScript. So totally. Yeah. Well, wow, that was a long time ago. 2016. Wow. Mm-hmm. Changelog 227,
0: which is also uh, a 1980s, I think, TV show, 227.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't earned that show. Yeah.
0: That's a long time ago.
1: He's, he's, he's Googling furiously to confirm?
0: Yes. May 6th, 19... Well, no, it was a long time ago. It was a cool show. I watched that 1985 sitcom, five seasons.
1: It's called 227. What did that refer to? Was it referring to Frost's episode of the changelog? I think
0: it was basically like uh, they say follows the lives of a group of middle class people living in an
1: apartment building. So it's like. Was that their apartment number? Was
0: 227?
1: Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So it was like
0: a lot of personalities in there.
2: It's cool. Do you believe in numerology? The the belief that numbers have, you know. Significant meanings. Like, significant meanings. Yeah. Not sure how much well, I believe I in it, but I, I believe it's a lost, thing, you know. This episode is off to a great
1: start. (laughs) I said I believed it until I saw Lost. Because they had the two four eight thing and then it ended up meaning like nothing. I can't remember. I don't know. Lost. It lost me. Uh, Good first two seasons and then just like complete utter disappointment from then on out. (laughs) Well, there you go. Totally. It's true. And now we're just lost in this conversation. So let's loop back to Farras. Episode 227. Go check it out though. Let's leave that there at least. (laughs) You you mentioned that you, you come on and you talk to us about your creations. So we had an episode of JS Party about BitMIDI back in the day. That was just you and I on that show. And then we also had you on JS Party way more recently. That was in July of last year. Talking about Wormhole. Today we're here to talk about Socket, which grew out of Wormhole. Mm-hmm. So let's start with Wormhole, just a brief explainer of what that is, what it does, why you built it. And then you can tell us the story of how this new thing came about.
2: Yeah, totally. So Wormhole uh, is a project to help you send files securely with end-to-end encryption. So, you know, it, it came out of our desire to build a, a file sharing, a file sending service that didn't need to see your files. Uh, and, uh, you know, fi- f- Firefox actually had a thing called Firefox Send for a while. If you, I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they shut it down, uh, you know, uh, like, like uh, at some point in 2020. And so uh, when we, you know, wanted to do this, we, we realized like we would just have to build our own version of it. And we kind of, at the time, we wanted to build it into um, kind of a, a bigger idea around like end to end encrypting everything, like all the things like documents, notes, you know, collaborative, you know, things like chat. And we wanted to start with files because, uh, it's files are the easiest, you know, they're static content. So why not start with that? Uh, you know, and so we, we built out this thing, um, and, you know, tried as much as we could to make it really, really secure. And we started off with a kind of a fork of the Firefox send code base. uh, And we were inspired by like the encryption uh, system that they used. And we added actually a bunch of improvements to it and additional like web security features. Uh, So we, you know, we did a bunch of things like, you know, there's no third party scripts in this in the site at all. You know, we have a really strong content security policy to make sure that, you know, if something gets in there that we can block those kinds of cross-site scripting attacks and stuff like that. And and we also added stuff around uh, peer-to-peer to make it actually faster to send files. So we wanted to kind of really make the user experience really good with with Wormhole as well. So we do this thing where you can actually uh, start downloading a file before it's fully uploaded. So if <laughs> if the sender and the receiver are... Uh, online at the same time you don't actually have to wait for the file to fully upload it'll actually just the downloader will start to be able to stream it directly from your browser using uh, WebRTC so we did a whole bunch of cool things like that in Wormhole it's a really cool project it's it's online at wormhole.app you can check it out
1: and you can check out that episode for a long conversation about some of those cool tricks and hacks that y'all did it was a JS Party episode but it had Adam on it so it has a very much a changelog <laughs> feel that's episode 185 yeah of JS Party, Nick Nease also joined us on that one. So you're building wormhole and doing cool stuff and very security conscious, mm-hmm. conscientious, whichever word is correct, or both. And you said one of the security things that you wish you could have done better was vetting of your dependencies. And it seems like what you're up to now,
3: mm-hmm.
1: in addition to wormhole or kind of this new thing that you're doing because of wormhole or out of wormhole, is a kind of a shift or a change or a new direction towards solving not just file encryption and sending problems, but this is like every developer's problem yeah. on the internet now, which is the whole dependency supply chain security problem that nobody really has good answers for at the moment.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I think everybody feels the pain around dealing with their dependencies. And that's definitely something we experienced when we were building Wormhole. You know, there's so many dependencies in the average JavaScript application. You know, the average dependency has 79 other transitive, you know, dependencies. So you install one package, you get get 79 other packages. That's the average on NPM right now, according to this paper that came out last year that analyzed uh, the registry. And there's also 39 additional maintainers that you trust when you trust a single package. So it's a pretty large attack surface. And... You know, for the most part it's fine I mean most maintainers are good and you know this this is the system mostly works I mean I'm a maintainer and a lot of my friends are open source maintainers and you know the the NPM ecosystem is is a wonderful place and it's you know full of full of amazing packages and it's 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 really awesome uh, you know that everyone can can just install this stuff and and build apps really fast it's the reason why you know open source is the reason why uh, you can build an app with like two people and it's you know that would have taken like teams and teams of people before mm-hmm. to do and and so I'm not trying 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 to um you know me of all people i wouldn't i wouldn't be complaining about about open source but when you're trying to build an app for like maximum security you're faced with this kind of really difficult trade-off where you know really like the safest thing to do on the one like if you had to just pick the most impractical position you could have it would be we're going to read every line of code of our dependencies and we're not going to use anything that we haven't vetted ourselves and that's Actually, appropriate for some applications. Like if you're building, you know, Signal, like the secure, you know, end end encrypted messaging app. Like you probably want to know. They probably want to know everything that's in every single one of their dependencies, right? Big companies, Google, right? They're, they're actually an example of this as well. They check in all their open source code into their own internal repository. They vendor it and they consider it their own code. Um, and they have a security team that actually vets it first and uh, they also vet updates so if you want to update to a new version the the security team is actually involved in that process they look at the diff and they kind of decide when or if uh, Google's going to apply that update so it's a very um, manual process mm-hmm. but obviously for most teams that's both of you know these approaches of like fully vetting a package is is totally impractical both because of like time and and resources but beyond that even just like the skill to even understand all these various projects it's like not necessarily the case that every team can can even do that i mean the, kind of part of the reason why you use dependencies is because you know you're trying to like stand on the shoulders of giants and you don't want to be an expert in all the all the all the stuff that you're depending on so to to uh, to then require every single team out there to like fully understand every line of code of their dependencies is really asking a lot but the thing is that if you don't do that you know then there is a small chance that you're going to install a package which contains malware that is a package that's just been hijacked, and that you know doesn't do what it says on the box anymore. And everyone's seeing more and more examples of this in the news. You know, there was an incident like literally last January where a maintainer compromised his own package, uh, and we did an episode about that on on JS Party. Um, I'm sure Jared's looking up the number right now, (laughs) but (laughs) that's
1: the Faker JS and the Colors JS. Yeah, I believe it's I believe it's two eleven, but it might be two ten. Still looking, but we'll get it in the show notes.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, like you know, that's one example. But there was, you know, another example before that in November, uh, and another one in October of last year. um, Is this seems to happen nearly monthly now? You know, in in October and November, it was Koa. RC and UA parser JS that were compromised. They had a Bitcoin, or not a Bitcoin, a Monero miner added to the package, as well as some malware that stole passwords on Windows from over a hundred different programs on Windows and also the Windows credential manager. So if you were unlucky enough to install one of those packages during the period where the bad version was on npm, then uh, you know you would be compromised. You'd have lost all your mm-hmm. you know all your passwords. You'd need to reset everything and install your keys and everything like that. And um, you know, UA Parser JS is depended upon by React Native. So like you know these these packages had a lot of dependencies. Like you know they had each of those three I mentioned had thirty million downloads a month each. So we're talking like seriously popular packages that were compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the UA parser one, is just an, as, an, as an example, you know, that one has seven million downloads a week and has three million GitHub repos that depend on it. Wow. Just like that one project, three million GitHub repos. And, uh, you know, the way that one was compromised was the, I believe the maintainer, their account password was just sort of like uh, sold on a, on a Russian hacking forum. So there's this post. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's it's not it's not like 100% certain that this is uh you know the, the, this is the, the the cause of it, but it, 2 weeks before UA parser js was compromised, there was a post on a on a notorious Russian hacking forum. Uh, so on October 5th, was when the post was was done and then on October 22nd, 2021 was when uh UA parser was compromised. Yeah. And the the post on the 5th said that uh so this guy was basically selling an npm account and, with more than 7 million weekly downloads, which is a suspicious number because that's exactly the number that UA parser JS has. Mm. And uh, it said there's no 2FA on the account uh, and I have the password. So that's enough for you to log in and change the email address. And they were selling this for $20,000 to, to the highest, to like the, the first the first bidder.
1: <sighs> 20K. <Yeah. laughs>
2: 20K. 20K for for, uh, for the keys to the kingdom. You know, access to everyone's builds. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, if, if the commons keeps growing, which we want it to, right? Like you had just said, you can produce... You know, some amazing software, if not a full fledged company that could be worth billions mm-hmm. with two people or less than 10. I think, who is it that I have to look up my notes, but somebody is like super bullish on like with less than 10 people, you could build a billion dollar company. And that's totally possible. I think it's challenging because that's a lot of revenue for 10 people to manage all accounts and whatnot. But I digress. The tech, sure, the company may be harder to actually run with 10 people.
1: I think WhatsApp famously did. What they did was like less than 50 engineers. And that was,
3: Hmm.
1: how long ago was that? WhatsApp's acquisition, because that was a billion dollar plus acquisition, had to be seven, eight, nine years ago. And that was 50 people, 50 engineers. So just, uh, I think we could trend down towards 10, just adding some evidence to that statement, you know? (laughs) And we're we're not going back. Yeah, we're not going back, are we? Well, okay, sustaining
0: a billion dollar company could be more challenging. Sure. The point being though, is that you want the commons to grow, right? You want the commons to be there because it's obviously super valuable and we're all humans. And so you can only harden security to a certain point before just somebody's 2FA is not enabled. Their password is less secure. They get socially engineered somehow. I mean, it's the last four, their phone number, you get their phone number. I mean, just like, there's just unique ways you can get into different things with people. So how do you really, you can't, since you can't, solve for the human problem you have to solve for it a different way
2: Mm -hmm. how do you do that yeah i mean i think i think it's worth looking at kind of why is this becoming a problem now and why has it not been a problem up until now to kind of get to to kind of understand like you know maybe that gives us ideas of like how we need to solve this and i i think what's changed since you know what's changed is kind of the way we write software so you know, with the with the emergence of npm and uh, newer ecosystems, even Rust, I would include in this, the way that we write software has changed. So the number of the number of dependencies that we have in an average application is is just off the charts, and it's part of the reason why people always make fun of JavaScript and say that you know you know the JavaScript programmers forgot how to program. They need to install you know a, a five line fun, you know a five line package. Their
1: Node modules is heavier than the universe, and all that kind of jokes.
2: Exactly. So that that whole thing is like. There's some truth to that. Uh, There's some truth to the, you know, know, it is, it is, it doesn't seem ideal that we have so many trivial packages and that, you know, the, the standard library is the way that it is in JavaScript. But on the other hand, you know, in the, in the aftermath of LeftPad, there were all these people posting, you know, oh, I can implement left pad in one line, here it is. And uh, almost every single one of those implementations had bugs, like left pad, the actual left pad package actually did it correctly. And so even for something as trivial as that, like getting bug fixes and having the code be centralized in a package and having it improve over time actually has a lot of benefits. So I don't, I don't think we're going back even, even in, in that regard. But I think the other thing that's changed is so like, so like, because of that, right. No one is reading the code because there's just too many dependencies, and no one is actually looking at what these packages do, and they're relying on tools like you know these these tools that look for vulnerabilities and uh, sort of just calling it a day and saying we well, we installed you know Dependabot or something like that, and so like our you know we're, we're we're safe, our open source is safe, but the thing is that a vulnerability scanner can only tell you so much about a package. It can only tell you if there's a known vulnerability. And a known vulnerability is something that a security researcher has found in a package. You know, they found this problem, they've reported it to the maintainer, and they've published a CVE. And this tool can now tell you, okay, this package is, this particular version is vulnerable and you should update to such and such version to get a fix. But, you know, that, that, that doesn't actually stop the type of attack we're talking about here where a package is taken over by a maintainer and malware is inserted. That isn't gonna be in a CVE database. That isn't gonna be a vulnerability that is a known vulnerability. That is, by definition, an unexpected occurrence, right? So, So what you really need, in my opinion, is to actually look at the contents of the package to figure out what's inside the package. What is it doing? What capabilities is it using? Does it talk to the network? Does it read files on your file system? Does it run an install script, right? Was a new maintainer added recently to this package? That's the kind of thing that if you had that intelligence, then you could have caught all of the supply chain attacks of the last year. You can catch
0: all pretty early. You can, because if you had a, you know, two new maintainers in the last month and it installs, mm-hmm. you know, it's a good candidate to check, to vet further yeah. rather than the ones who don't, for, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, just for those who may be uninitiated, what's a CVE for us?
2: So a CVE is a, um, what does it even stand for? <laughs> uh, Common Vulnerabilities and
0: Exposures.
2: Yeah, it's basically a number that uh, is assigned by this organization called MITRE. And when a security researcher finds a vulnerability in a software package, they report on that to the maintainer, and then they can get this sort of standardized number issued. And what's cool about that is it goes into all the, it feeds into all this tooling. And so there's like a common way to refer to these vulnerabilities with a common identifier. And when tooling reports about it, you know, there's like a thing you can look up and know what vulnerability exactly we're talking about because there's so many we need to like number them. And so this is kind of just like a central organization that coordinates these, these, uh, this numbering. So it's also actually a government effort. So the, the U S department of Homeland security and, uh, CISA, Cyber Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, are the ones that that run it, uh, and all this goes into this thing called the NVD or the National Vulnerability Database. Um, so it's actually a government, the U.S. government uh, effort, uh, and that's the thing that all the different tooling basically just reports on right now. Mm-hmm. It's all like you know, and this is actually what NPM audit does—the thing that you know that you see every time you run NPM install, and it tells you you have you know ten packages with vulnerabilities. It's really just doing a lookup into this database and telling you how many CVEs are known for, you know, for the versions you're installing. What you're what
0: you're saying though is you can't simply rely on that. Like it's a good practice, of course, right? But if it's the only line of defense, that's where you have a problem with it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think like, so take take like what we were doing with Wormhole, right? I mean, we were looking for this. I mean, we we had Dependbot installed and, you know, that will go, that Dependbot will go ahead and send us a pull request if we have, a you know, a vulnerability in our project and we would update that and get that out as quickly as we could. And that's a great thing to do. But the thing we were specifically worried about was, you know, the, the kind of attack that would you know, target Wormhole specifically or one of these supply chain attacks that would just start doing random things on our server, like mining cryptocurrency or talking to random servers. You know, there was that ESLint scope bug from, that was another attack that happened where they uh, the malware actually stole your NPM RC file and it could publish packages as as you. Um, you know And then there was, I mean, I can just, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. Like the things that can go wrong with, so it's like, you have this small probability of a really bad thing happening because when you run NPM install, you're basically just trusting that the code, you know, is gonna do what it says and you're running this on your laptop, right, with, like, all your personal files, your photos, your your all your documents, your social security number, all that stuff is on there, right? And then you're running it on, on your production server with all your user data. Uh, now, in the case of Wormhole, we don't we didn't store any user data, but we, uh, you know, our app needed to be secure to not, you know, serve compromised JavaScript code down to our visitors. And so, you know, that was our concern. That's what we were worried about. And, you know, once wormhole got popular and we started getting like, you know, over 100,000 people using it every month um, and we, st- we started looking at the the really basic statistics that we gather about the users, we saw like a third of our visitors come from China and they're using it to send files there securely. And so then I started to get pretty worried. I was like, well, you know, we, we're we not the biggest fish in the pond, but there is a chance that, you know, we could be the target of state-sponsored Attackers, you know, Mm -hmm. who want to know what what's going on in those files, and you know, I, I, you know, so it seemed like a thing that we should at least have a plan for how we're going to deal with our dependencies and how we're going to vet these things. And when we looked around for tools for this, like basically, I didn't find anything. I mean, one option is, I guess, you could check in your dependencies into your into your repo, and like, but then you're still not going to be vetting them, right? I think basically what everybody does is they just kind of hope for the best. and <laughs> They don't look at their code. But This is what I call trust the system for us. I, I made this
0: up a long time ago. I went to Jamaica with my wife. We got married in Jamaica. And this is actually when I coined the, the phrase, trust the system, babe, I said to her. <laughs> and my sister-in-law, future sister-in-law, because we, we weren't married yet. Hey, what are you doing with your bag? I just trust the system. You know, it's a different country. It's not the USA. It's so like things get handled differently. Not that you can't trust them, but there's just different things happen in different countries differently than they do here. And so long story short, my sister-in-law did not have her bag. And thankfully she checked one because then she actually had clothes and she could actually go to our wedding and do all the fun things we had planned. But I came up with this term, trust the system. And that's what you do. When you NPM
1: install, you trust the system.
2: Yeah, but I like trust but verify better.
0: There you go. Okay. Trust but verify.
1: Touche. We also have DependentBot installed and have long been have been a user of intrusion detection systems in the past. And monitoring systems, and these are vulnerability scanners and their technology solutions. Ultimately, for me, they've come up short because of the noise, Mm -hmm. because of the false positives, because they're not smart enough to know that actually that vulnerable package never runs in a production context. You know, it's like part of my build process. Or there's seven reasons from Sunday why it doesn't apply. And when I hear your solution of, well, what we need to do is like be looking for these other things, such as this project has two new maintainers. Well, that's a that's an alert I'm going to ignore immediately. Right. (laughs) Because aren't we just adding more noise to the potential signal that we're trying to get out? Or maybe there's a different way that you're going about this that makes it special.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm very sensitive to the noise issue, so I definitely wouldn't want to use a tool that added noise. And so that's definitely not what Socket's going to do. So we're being very careful with the types of things that we will alert you on. So if you install the GitHub app for Socket, it will currently just warn you about squatting, uh, which is the number one supply chain attack happening right now on NPM. Explain squatting real quick. Yeah, so squatting is when um, somebody registers a package name that is one or two characters off from a popular package, and they hope that people will accidentally install the typoed version, you know, the typoed name, and get the attacker's code. You know, so think about, you know, think of like something like, you know, say like you, you, you registered the name, you know, React, but you swap the location of the like R and the E, right? Um, In the name React. And you just hope that like, I don't know, a couple hundred people are going to make that mistake and install that typoed version. And then once that runs, then, you know, the attacker's code is in there and it can do whatever it wants. And we see that, you know, like 60% of uh, malware on NPM uses an install script. So that means that just you hitting enter on that is like enough to compromise you. So you're going to type NPM install typoed version of react, right? You hit enter and then even before you've like imported it or whatever, it runs code on your machine. Uh, and that's that's like the install script attack vector that um, you see most malware malware use. And then um, you know what is it going to do? Of course it can do whatever whatever it wants at that point, but mm-hmm. but they're just hoping like they're basically just kind of riding on this like popularity. The thing that the thing that's crazy is like there's so many of these that even like you know, I found, for example, there's this package called Browsers List. Have you heard of it uh-uh. before? Um, you probably use it though. Um, it's it's like uh, it's this thing that lets you kind of define the browsers that you want to support in your application, so you can you can say like I support IE 11 or, oh God forbid, hopefully you don't have to support IE 11, but you know, uh, I support, you know, the last two versions of Chrome or whatever. And you can put this into a standardized uh, file in your repo and then all the different kind of tooling that you use can like refer to that file and, um, know, use that for automatically generating polyfills and stuff like that. So all the, all the different tools can rely on one place where you define the browsers that you support for your whole app. And anyway, it's, but it's a weird name, right? It's called browsers list. And so I always, I constantly make the typo. I type browser list, Mm. you know, instead of browsers list, it's a very easy typo to make. And, um, if you look up that that typoed package, you'll see that the uh, oldest version that's been published in there is a security holding package from NPM, which is usually you'll see that when a package used to be malware at some point, and then it got taken over, you know, it got kind of removed. And then uh, they put up a kind of a blank package to kind of hold the name so that bad guys can't register it in the future. So I don't know for sure whether that used to be malware in the past, but it seems like it may have been. And if you look at it now, the current owner of it has published a um, kind of a one-line package that just throws an exception and says, hey, you shouldn't install this, like you really meant to install the other one, which is a nice nice service that they're uh, providing to people. Mm-hmm. But if you look at that, it's still installed 700,000 times a year. Wow. Uh, the typoed version. And so, like, of course, yeah, yeah. There's no tool that's telling people that they're installing the wrong version and that, that this is a source of unnecessary risk. And so, we found this, and we looked at what packages were doing this, and we found, you know, the popular preact library was installing browser list, the wrong package. So preact was vulnerable. So we went, I mean, oh it wasn't, gosh. you know, an actual an actual vulnerability, but it was, you know, it was this unnecessary dependency that could, you know, it was just adding risk for no benefit. And, uh, you know, we found other stuff like there's, I mean, there's all kinds of like, you know, browserify, right? There's a typo called bowserify. It's literally browserify, but like with extra
1: for Nintendo, extra,
2: <laughs> yeah, for Nintendo fans, but also with extra <laughs> code injected into your bundle. Oh, like that's all they added. Sure,
1: Why not? A little bonus. It's the
2: same thing, but with extra code.
1: It's like a power up.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it's doing. I mean, maybe it's fine, but like, yeah. it's just like this, these weird things out there. And remember NPM is like kind of a wiki. I mean, anyone can publish anything. Sure. So like you know, there's there's no guarantee that these these random typos that only have like 100 downloads have ever been vetted by anybody. So you really don't wanna run that stuff on your computer. So anyway, to answer your question, Jared, that's an example where if we were to tell you in a pull request, hey, you installed a typo, it appears that you installed a typo because we found this other package that's one letter different that has a million times more downloads than the one you chose. And it just asks you to double check, you know, like like, hey, are you sure you meant to install this one and not this other one? Then we see that as like that's probably not going to be a noisy alert. Like it's probably not going to happen that often. And but if if it even happens like once every three months that it catches a typo, like you're just really happy that it did that, right? You're not going to complain that this bot like warned you about this uh, this typo. Yeah. So like that's the kind of level of things we're trying to catch with the bot, and we don't want to anything like noisy. We're not going to include it. It's just not worth it.
0: Isn't there a thing too where? When you read a sentence, you can remove the vowels. You can, like, rearrange the first mm-hmm. and last letter. I'm totally making this up. But there's something that's, like, you can read a full-on sentence that's totally jacked up from a character organizational standpoint. Like, it doesn't even have to be spelled correctly. And you can still read it because that's the way the human mind works. It completes itself, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the exact study. If you all know, then for sure share it. But while you were talking there about browsers, list plural, I Googled it and landed on browserslist.dev. And I was thinking like, how do I even know if this is the right site? Because you could totally be the misspelled version of it and put a very similar site up. And it can look very mm-hmm.
1: good. It can look just like browsers list should be. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Especially since the source code for browserslist.dev is probably open source on GitHub. You just copy theirs and make your changes and republish. And it looks almost yeah. like the real thing.
2: Yeah, I mean the thing that makes this hard too is like that that a lot of these these names are, uh, it's not clear. Like you know, there's like things like you know you know blah 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 dash proxy or you know blah 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 dash proxied, Right. Mm-hmm. It's like the, 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 what what like, tense of the word are you supposed to use? There's a lot of this kind of stuff that, that you see in these type of squatting attacks. Another common one is this, the JS suffix, right? Like uh, or. You know, in other ecosystems, there's the the, the dot pi suffix. Uh-huh. Like, is the library called is it called standard or is it called standard js? Well, it turns out both of those are available on npm. Oh wow! And if you install the, the wrong one, right, it's gonna it's some random some random garbage that someone published. Uh, you know, that it's nothing to do with the original project. And so, you know, it's just it's kind of a and and you know sometimes the the js version is the right one and sometimes the one that's missing it is the right one. So it's just it's hard to know a priori what's the correct one.
0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Millions of Square sellers use the Square App Marketplace to discover and install apps they rely on daily to run their businesses. And the way you get your app there is by becoming a Square App Partner Let me tell you how this works. As a Square app partner, you can offer and monetize your apps directly to Square sellers in the app marketplace to millions of sellers. You can leverage the Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for millions of businesses. And here's the best part. You get to keep 100% of revenue while you grow. Square collects a 0% cut from your sales for the first year or your first 100 Square referred sellers. That way you can focus on building and growing your Square customer base and you get to set your own pricing models. You also get a ton of support from Square. You get access to Square's technical team using Slack. You get insights into the performance of your app on the app marketplace. And, of course, you get direct access to new product launches. And all this begins at changelog.com slash Square. Again, changelog.com slash Square.
1: So if we are to focus in on your typo squatting detection algorithms, are you using other heuristics besides download counts? Like, how do you decide, all right, we're going to go ahead and open that PR because we think this is a typo. There's probably some, mm-hmm. you got to be putting some work into that whole, that whole aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Help us through the thought process.
2: Yeah. So for typo squatting, we basically say, okay, any package that has at least 50,000 downloads is probably not a typo. Um, it's gotten popular enough that I, th- I think it's uh, actually, we're, we're we're still tweaking it. So it's, it could be a hundred thousand. It could be uh, so, some amount of weekly downloads where we say this package has reached a critical mass of people downloading it that we don't think that this is all typos. And so we're just going to like not ever consider those to be typos. But then if the package is kind of less popular than that threshold, then we say, okay, does it have a name that's similar to any other name of a package in in npm and we do this thing called levenstein distance which is an algorithm for basically just counting up the number of characters that have been added removed or replacements that have happened in a string so it's like a way to sort of describe the distance between two strings Mm. you can assign a number to it like how far are these from each other Um, and so what we do is like if the number is too, you know, too cl- if it's too close, the distance is too close, then, uh, and we set that, I think it like, it depends on the length of the package. Like the longer the name, the more, chances for typos there are, so we scale it, you know, a little bit by the length of the package name. And then we also take into account common endings and things like, you know, .js or .py or whatever, or or swapping orders of things, because sometimes there's, you know, there's like a package called node canvas, but is it canvas node? Like, you know, so things like that, where you swap the order of words, we consider that to be, you know, that's like one change, even though technically a ton of letters are moving around, we consider that to be like an easy mistake to make, so that's like a one letter or like a one cost change. And then, so then once we do that and we figure out, okay, these are all the packages that have similar names, then we say, all right, are any of these a thousand times more popular than the one that you installed? So it has to be, you know, like vastly more popular. That's kind of the current algorithm we use. Now we're still tweaking it and improving it, but that seems to kind of work so far and it catches all the stuff that we know for sure are typos and we're we're sort of just going with that and and tweaking it as we get, as we kind of notice more cases that it triggers false positives or, or false negatives. Uh, but it seems to work pretty well right now. That approach.
1: How are you QAing that? You just doing a bunch of typos yourselves and trying to see how it works, or do you have? I guess is socket being used by anybody where you start to get real human feedback, like ah, eh, this is not a typo, sorry, and you can work that into your sample <laughs> set or what?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're um, working with design partners, so like early customers that are uh, using this on their repos. So we have you know a bunch of different people using it, uh, Brave, Browser, Expo, that's the React Native uh, tool, uh, Replit, and Passfolio, and, and a couple of other ones that I can't mention. Let's say one, one of them is, a, is an uh, end-to-end encrypted messaging app that you may have heard of. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's not a wormhole. <laughs> It's not wormhole. exactly.
1: <laughs> I can put the message in a file and send the file, and now it's a messaging app. Boom.
2: Uh huh. Oh no, no, it's not. It's not. Wormhole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> you can't mention it, but it happens to be wormhole. Yeah.
2: There are people that are using it, and so they're giving us feedback. I mean, it's it's um it's a thing we're trying to improve and get feedback on because uh, it is early. I mean, this is a new thing we sure. built, and we're just trying to see what people think of it and what the right you know thresholds are for all this stuff.
0: And, and there's no tool out there. That currently does this, right? Like looking at the author changes or the contributor changes, looking at typo squatting type scenarios where you have sure a thousand ways to one to do it, but obviously, I would imagine similar to maybe the way Richard Hill might answer it with SQLite that their their sweet spot really is their test suite. So SQLite is open source, but the test suite is not. Mm-hmm. So I'd imagine that over time, this test suite you have to test this algorithm for the typo squatting will. Probably be behind the scenes. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now we, we we're testing this through spot checking it and through really really basic tests, uh, and then just like reports from from users. But b- building out our super like thorough uh, test suite is is definitely uh, on our roadmap. The thing is, we don't want to ever block a developer. So, you know, even in the worst case where you do get a false alert from this, like it's it's a comment on a on a GitHub PR, so it's not going to stop you from. You know, the goal is not to like stop developers from like doing their jobs. It's like the goal is to just give you information that can help you make a better decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody wants to have a tool that like stops them from doing their job and stops them from from like shipping code. Um, we got to you know keep things moving, gotta move quickly. No nobody wants to like ins- install a tool that like stops them from. Uh, from uh, getting work done, so yeah, it's uh, it's that, that's that's why it's important to like keep the the bot really high signal as well because we don't want people to like get annoyed with it and turn it off. So um, it's currently just stuff that's really high high signal.
1: So typo squatting I can see being high signal low noise. Permissions creep is another thing you mentioned. And, you know, new maintainers mm-hmm. or new permissions on maintainers for a project. That's the one that I brought up. As to me, seems like I couldn't possibly care less Mm -hmm. until i do Mm -hmm. so i'm curious just the implementation (laughs) of that one right because that one seems like it's even more tenuous to get right
2: yeah so so um we have a so we have first of all i should mention we have a website that you can go to to look up the results of the analyses that we have so we have like 70 of these analyses on there um, and you can see you know exactly what they are if you go to socket.dev and click on the issues tab at the top you can see the list of things that we can find in packages. So we're actually running analysis of every NPM package that's published and looking for all these things. You can think of it like a linter kind of, like it's sort of just like hunting down these issues. And then when we find stuff, we put it onto the page for that package. And then separately we have this GitHub app and there's a question about like, what things do people want to know about while they're on GitHub? And so. We don't necessarily take all the 70 things we find and put that into the app because that would be a little too noisy. And so, you know, this example you have about like a new maintainer isn't by itself an interesting thing, but if you combine that with, well, also it seems obfuscated code was added in this version, right? So maybe that, maybe obfuscated code being added plus a new maintainer, right? Plus like eval being used. Maybe the three of those things rises to the level of like, you know, this is noteworthy. Uh, and this version may require some further investigation. Right. And it kind of goes back to what Adam said earlier where you know you have a limited amount of time to spend on this kind of you know on 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 vetting your dependencies. Right now people spend zero time <laughs> on vetting their dependencies yeah. and then the big companies like Google spend like you know ton of time and money vetting their dependencies. But for everyone else who's in between the two or want, wants to do a little bit more than nothing <laughs> but doesn't want to quite go to like the level of Google then having a tool that can point you to when a particular package has changed in a way that is suspicious and potentially malicious so that you can spend your time vetting that one dependency and looking at the diff for that one update, that's a good use of time. And then you can ignore the rest. You can say the rest, you know, no new maintainers, nothing interesting happened. The code isn't, you know, it, it doesn't even, hasn't changed in any significant way. So what's the big deal? You know, let's just update, right? Yeah, so that's kind of the idea it's, it's like, it's a balance. You gotta, for factors that are, for factors like adding a new maintainer are not by themselves suspicious enough, I think, to warrant most people's attention. Although, you know, again, for certain projects, I could see them actually caring about that uh, a lot. So this needs to be configurable. right So we're working on a like a yaml file that you can use to configure exactly what things you want to get alerted about. But we want to have like really sensible defaults for that.
1: So to give the listener an idea, they're not going to socket.dev, if you search for a package that you use in any of your projects, it's pretty cool. It will give you the readme for that project as well as an overview of what it is. And then you all provide this kind of scoring system of 1 to 100 for supply chain security, how it rates for quality, maintenance, vulnerabilities, and licensing as well. I plugged in Umbrella.js, which we have on our site, which is like a lightweight it's like a 3-kilobyte jQuery kind of thing for those who still like jQuery-style DOM manipulation, but in a light sense. It has a 76 for supply chain security. Not great. Quality's high, 95. Maintenance is 50. I think it's probably kind of a done package Has one maintainer. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a place where you can start here if you're just vetting dependencies that you're considering, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to use it in the GitHub app, alert me, and open PRs kind of style. You can just use it as a source of information, I'm looking at LeftPad. Ooh, package is deprecated. <laughs> package has a non-OSI approved license. Package has not been updated in more than a year. So.
2: Yeah, you see the kind of alerts we find. So yeah, it's using apparently a WTFPL license. <laughs> <laughs> low score. Yeah, yeah. a low score gives it a low a low license score, and that's a big red flag. Uh, and then yeah, it's also deprecated and hasn't been updated in more than a year. So those all show up as the big alerts at the top of the page. Yeah, Yeah, that's pretty cool. There's
0: a a particular recipe for nefarious activity and you're detecting, like Jared had said, he's like, well, I don't really care if a maintainer changed necessarily. But like you had said for us, if you combine that with a recipe of potential nefarious activity, then you do care. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Exactly. A license change or as you'd mentioned, maybe there's more permissions this time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the permissions one is really big. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a lot of this, this uh, the supply chain attacks. You know, they go, fr- they go from you know, like you have a package like UA Parser which is literally a user agent string parser, right? It doesn't need the file system. It doesn't need to talk to the network, right? It's a completely, it's a self-contained package, right? And then suddenly, this new version came out that was downloading an executable file. And then running chmod to make it executable, right? Wow. That's a shell command, right? And then it runs the file, and then that talks to the network, right? So like you have all these things, like shell, file system, and network, that are in a user agent parser. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's like a pretty dead giveaway that like something <laughs> something's changed here. Uh, maybe don't update to this version quite so quite so eagerly, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So that's the kind of thing we want to catch and, and uh, highlight and draw people's attention to.
0: Let's probably jump in the gum a, a bit, but how, uh, how then do you scan all this open source? Like It must be an expensive activity. How do you, how do, you do it? What's the process? Give us, a, give us a walkthrough of how you pull down new code, pay attention to new code, pay attention to, are you only paying attention to master or main? You know, is it simply a pull from GitHub? How do you, what's the mechanics?
2: Yeah, so we have a pipeline that can do analysis tasks. And we feed in NPM packages. And so, you know, we do this on every package published that happens on NPM. So we have a program that's tailing NPMs following all the publishes in real time. And then whenever a, a new package is published, we download the tarball. You know, we, d- we save the, the data about it, the metadata. And then we, we then kick off our analysis job to kind of you know, give us, you know, basically to run all these tasks that we've, we've basically written, like I said, about 70 of these, these analysis analyses for a package. And so we kick that off. It runs and usually it actually takes, we're we're actually quite efficient. Each one is taking us like five seconds or 10 seconds for a package. And then we, you know, packages might have transitive dependencies. So we might be doing this on, you know, However many things they depend on, we're going to have to analyze those as well because you know we don't want to just analyze the top level package. That's going to miss anything nefarious that's added in a in a dependency of a dependency. So we we, we run this on all of them, you know, and then we save the result and that's pretty much it. And we designed it in a way where um, we can also do this lazily. So we didn't need to sort of sit down and just kind of like crunch through in a batch job. We didn't need to like crunch through the entire registry. So we actually have the capability to. To wait until a user visits the page for a package, or requests the score for a package, uh, or you know uh, does a lookup to actually then run that analysis, and so we can actually do it lazily if we need to. So we're we're doing that now in some cases uh, for like the really really not popular stuff. We're not gonna we're not gonna necessarily go and run an expensive analysis on on all that stuff until someone looks it up, uh, and then we'll do that in real time for that package. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we've done it in a really cool way where um, we actually built it as. Um, we did our own custom pipeline system, so we didn't want to use something like Apache Spark or whatever, which requires you to use Java and is kind of slow and clunky and and, uh, and, and uh, has a little bit of latency for running these jobs. We did it with our own JavaScript pipeline that we wrote, and it actually can um, cache the intermediate results of these analysis tasks so that like you can build a task that depends on other tasks. So say like you have one task is like download the code for this package, right? you can cache that forever once you've done it. There's no need to download that tarball again. It's not gonna change. You know, a a version is immutable. And then you can have a package uh, or a a task uh, above that takes in the tarball and then like untars it, right? And then you can cache that forever. And then you can have a task above that that takes in the result of that and parses it into an AST you know, for for the for the JavaScript, and then you can cache that, and so you can kind of construct these tasks, can call into other tasks. But then when when one part, when one subtask is done, it may need to never be run again, right? Whereas like maybe the top level analysis we're doing, that actually might change more often, and so we can change that freely without having to worry about recomputing or redoing all the work below. If that makes sense, you can think of it like a tree structure, basically. Mm. So it's kind of nice, uh, and then we can store these mutable blobs into um, into a you know a storage system that uh, can store them forever. I don't know if that was too much information, but I, I think it's cool. It, it really it's a it's no, it's cool. It's a cool it's a cool uh, advantage that we have with our design, and it like helps us run this stuff like you know lazily in real time and like not not have it be too slow. You know,
0: mm-hmm. I'd imagine you want to do it lazily until. Like once people see socket as a proactive security source, Mm -hmm. you may not want to lean on lazily. So maybe while you're proving the model, startup mode, let's just say, (laughs) that's okay. But like in the future, once you become the beacon of light for security, Uh... which we believe I believe will happen because I believe in you, Frost, and I like what you're doing here. I think then maybe you throw lazily away because mm-hmm. and but then maybe that's more venture capital, maybe it's, you know, a larger <laughs> user base, maybe it's an acquisition, who the heck knows? But you know, this is you're doing something that hasn't been done before. You know, and I that to me, like I think the recipe for nefarious activity is uniquely uniquely done here. And the way you think about end to end security and the way you think about certain bits is just unique. So I, I love the fact that how you just like mapped it all out. That totally did it make sense? But it also made lots of sense.
1: <laughs> I didn't completely track you, but I'm also over here just typing in package names, trying to find out how good my <laughs> stuff is. So I, maybe my explanation wasn't <laughs> very good. No, no, no. I mean, I was half in and half out. So that's my excuse for not following. Uh, this is super cool. One thing I did notice is when you get to a package, it's socket.dev/slash/npm/slash/package. So as an information architecture nerd, I'm noticing there's like this NPM subdirectory feel going on. And I'm hoping that means you have future plans to expand beyond the JavaScript and NPM world and provide similar services for other ecosystems. Go,
2: Rust, Ruby, mm-hmm. is, that, is that on the roadmap too? Totally, yeah. I mean, this the problem of supply chain attacks is not JavaScript specific. its It happens in all all the ecosystems. Mm-hmm. It's just that usually JavaScript experiences the problems that other ecosystems experience, but like a couple years earlier because <laughs> JavaScript, <laughs> JavaScript is just like a little bit bigger and a little bit more chaotic and it has a little bit, you know, fewer more beginners in it than other ecosystems because mm-hmm. there's so many newbies always learning and joining. And so it ends up kind of hitting the breaking points a little bit sooner than other ecosystems. So that's kind of why we started there. Plus, I just... You know, I like JavaScript, sure. so I wanted to start there. <laughs> but uh, no, we're going to do all of them eventually. And uh, I think, I mean, honestly, Python and 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 like uh, and like Rust are kind of my personal the top of my personal list. But there's a lot of people asking us already if they could if they could use it for for Java uh, at work, you know, or Go. So we'll see what we prioritize. I guess if if you're interested in using this for a different language and you want to reach out and let me know what you know which which one you really want to see, we can maybe. Use that as an input to like decide what to prioritize, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but yeah no I mean this this problem I mean a lot of the a lot of stuff around like the uh, maintainer behavior that stuff we can apply pretty directly to other ecosystems right but the specific static analysis for each language is going to be isn't going to need to be kind of uh, redone so there's a little bit of work there but we can do it
1: yeah I I imagine each new language will be a separate lift with some separate tooling and mm-hmm. and yeah analyzing and usually in tools and languages that support that given ecosystem so Mm -hmm. we'll probably have a diverse set of skills or and or engineers by the time this thing is (laughs) you know uh, worldwide and global
2: yeah yeah we're gonna we're gonna need uh there's a lot of work to do that's for sure
1: are you up for that i mean that sounds like a huge undertaking
2: yeah but but i think i think it meaningfully makes security better i mean i i think that like you know, people need to. We need a mindset shift in the industry for how people think about their dependencies. Like, dependencies are not this magical thing that you can just show up and use as many as you want, and it's there's no downsides. And and there's these magical. It's it's not this like infinite buffet of of like open source that you can just take, and then there's no there's no costs to it. Like, eventually you will pay a cost for it, and uh, it's just a matter of it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I think that automatically looking for changes in a package that are nefarious is like a very low cost no-brainer thing to do to help with the problem and so i don't yeah i don't i don't think that uh there's really anything better than this that, that i could be working on to improve the security of the ecosystem yeah no. i mean like what what else yeah, I just want to—I just want to make a difference and make make this stuff more secure. And I, I'm trying to think like, what you know, I wish that we could all just like ag- agree on like the best packages to use, and we could vet those, and we could bless them and call them our magic, you know, our, call them a standard library that we just use. But with 1.8 million packages on npm and 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 millions more on all these other languages, like it's just too much. You, you, we're not gonna we're not gonna ever be able to read it all. So we we need tooling to help us.
3: Well,
0: too, and when you involve a human in this scan analysis, it's just, it's fraught for, for error. It's going to happen. So like we said, with, with reading a certain sentence, you can read it without the vowels in it and things that happen when when an individual sits down and reads a bunch of code. It's just, it's too large of a undertaking to read to date. The code was produced today, mm-hmm. let alone tomorrow and the next day and the next day. It's just not going to happen from a human perspective. What I think is quite beautiful, though, is how this came out of Wormhole, mm-hmm. you know, where where you had this mission to be security minded. You vetted your packages, or lack thereof, very very aware of of your security footprint, and to desire a tool like this, and for it to not be in place for you to then build it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know which one will be bigger. I mean, I ha- I have some bullish ideas about Wormhole itself. I'd I'd love a better Dropbox. I love Dropbox. I think they're great, but I think that they've sort of gotten. I don't even want to call them lazy by any means. I, I think there's a bunch of great people working there, so I don't want to like, belittle their work by any means. But I feel like there could be some good directions for the product, and they've kind of lost their way.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And this idea of end-to-end security and what you could do with Wormhole really impressed me and piqued my interest. But I'm wondering if, like, because of just simply the size of Sneak, for example, hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital raised, you know, billion-dollar company from when I last checked valuation – I mean, that's the kind of potential that you have here with Socket. Is that I think when Jared said, "Are you ready for that?" Are you ready, ready for that too? Because I mean, that's if you keep going this direction, that's what's going to happen.
2: Yeah, it's a huge opportunity for sure. I mean, I don't think Sneak solves this problem today. They just do vulnerabilities, and you know, we need to actually look at what's inside the packages and go beyond that. So, yeah, I mean, I I would I would love for this to be the next Sneak. You know, uh, I think we're on the track to do that. I think uh, if if people want to be early adopters and use us in our current form, you know, then we'll, we'll grow into a complete solution eventually that will compete with Sneak and uh, and do the job better. Right now, it's very focused on this thing that we do differently that's uniquely differentiated. You know, we do we actually analyze the package and and look for these issues in the code of the dependency and tell you whether, you know, you need to worry about the dependency or not. So, but eventually I think we'll grow into a full kind of thing and do all the stuff that a a solution like sneak does. Sure. Um, But yeah, I know it's, 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 it's going to be a journey, you know, for sure. And I I think, I mean, I think we want to keep, we'll, we'll keep working on wormhole as well, but I definitely think socket, you know, this, this security thing is, is actually a, a bigger solution because it's a problem every company has mm-hmm. the world at large the world has yeah and it and it's something that i feel like we're uniquely suited to do as open source maintainers and developers ourselves like it's 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 like a a rarer set of like understanding and kind of skills that it takes to build something like this. Well, I think a lot of like the tools that that you see in this space are like made by these kind of outsiders that kind of come in like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to tell everybody how to do security. And then they kind of impose this like top down tool on everybody, on all the developers and kind of tell them how it's going to be. And like, no one likes to use it and it's annoying. And there's all these false alerts and stuff. And like we as maintainers ourselves building this, Kind of understand the burden of all this stuff, this tooling and these false reports and all this stuff, and and uh, we know what like developers want to use. Like we're developers ourselves, and so I think we can really build something that's good here, you know, and and really meaningfully improves security for people.
0: Touch on that then. What's the what's the adoption story? If someone's listening to this and they're like, I want to, okay, fine, Frost. I believe in you. I believe in what's <laughs> going on here. I and maybe it's just JavaScript at, at the current time point. So npm packages. Mm-hmm. What's the adoption story? Walk us through that.
2: Yeah, I mean, so Socket's super easy to use right now. You go to the website, you click install GitHub app, you select the organization or the the, the repo you want to install it on, you click install, you're done. That's it. <laughs> so it's really easy. Uh, there's no configuration files. You know, I'm, I made standard JS, so I'm a fan of no configuration by default. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really easy to get started and once you install the GitHub app, it will monitor your package JSON file for changes and any pull request that adds a dependency or updates a dependency, we'll analyze that, we'll figure out what exactly is changing, you know, and we'll tell you in a comment on that pull request, anything you need to know. Primarily, we're starting with these typo squats today, but we're adding more and more of the 70 detections that I mentioned earlier into the bot as we're confident that they're not gonna be noisy. So we're starting with typo squats because those are rare and they're always important to see. And there's like never a you know never a really a, a case where you don't want to see that you're you may be installing a typo. But some of these other things we've talked about are or we're integrating those into the GitHub bot over time. So if you install this today, you know over the coming weeks it will continue to to grow and support more and more uh, types of supply chain attacks that it can detect and stop. So, uh, so that's that's kind of the plan there. What about price point? So it's it's totally free for uh, for open source repos and then for pay, for private repos it's also free right now but I think eventually we're definitely charging for that because that's you know that's sort of uh, that's sort of the model that a lot of these kind of tools use is you know if you have a private repo we want to charge charge you for that mm-hmm. um, and so you know we you know we, we want it to be like something that everybody can use and be affordable I think we'll probably even do a thing where you know like if you have five users or less then you just also get to use it for free even if it's a private repo just because you know we want like small teams to be able to use it mm-hmm. but I think you know if you're, if you're like a 30 person, you have like 30 people working on a private repo together, or hundreds or thousands or whatever, then uh, you definitely uh, will, will, will have to pay for it eventually. Uh, that's kind of the plan. So
0: business model pending, basically. There's some thoughts and inroads, but business model pending.
2: <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think I think I want I think we like the model of you know, like tra- you know, do you remember Travis CI? Everyone's kind of switched to GitHub Actions these days, but I I really like this model of you know, free for open source and then p- mm-hmm. paid for private because it encourages people to open source stuff as much as they as they can, you know, and it and it really charges the people who can kind of f- afford it, you know, and it gives it away to the community. So you know, I really like that model for pricing, and I think that's kind of what we'd want to do.
1: It makes sense because if you're going to be working on something privately, it's probably proprietary software that you're making money off of. And so
3: mm-hmm.
1: you can pay some money to make some money. But if you're willing to open source it and let it be in the world or if it's for other people as well as yourself, then it's open source already and it's free in that sense. So I think it I think it scales alongside, you know, usually the way people make money with software. So I think it's a good model. Mm-hmm. I think I should clarify pending then,
0: because instead <laughs> of pending, I'd probably used uh, still in the works, like still working out how it will actually play out in terms of the metrics and heuristics. It's mostly in place, but not so much pending. So I take that back. Thought through, but needs more. It's more work is happening.
1: <laughs> now, any any active business is probably working on their pricing at all times, right? Like yeah, yeah.
2: You, I feel I feel like I feel like early startups basically always uh, change their pricing every like three to six months in the beginning because they're just trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah you.
0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool. Retool is the low-code platform for developers to build internal tools. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool, Brex, Coinbase, Plaid, Doordash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Allbirds, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as the platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com/slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. And also by our friends at WorkOS. WorkOS is a platform that gives developers a set of building blocks for quickly adding enterprise-ready features to their applications, add single sign-on with Okta, Azure, and more, sync users from any skim directory, HRIS integration with Bamboo HR, Rippling and more, Audit Trails, free Google and Microsoft OAuth, free magic link sign-in WorkOS is designed for developers and offers a single elegant interface it abstracts dozens of enterprise integrations this means you're up and running 10 times faster so you can focus on building unique features for users instead of debugging legacy protocols and fragmented it systems You get RESTful endpoints, JSON responses, normalized objects, real-time webhooks, a developer dashboard, framework-native SDKs. And even if your team is not focused on enterprise right now, you can still leverage WorkOS so you're not turning enterprise away. Learn more. And get started at WorkOS.com. They have a single pay-as-you-grow pricing that scales with your usage and your needs. No credit card required. Again, WorkOS.com. They also have an awesome podcast called Crossing the Enterprise Chasm. And that is hosted by Michael Greenwich, the founder of WorkOS. Check it out at WorkOS.com slash podcast.
1: So up until Wormhole, all of your projects, your entire life have been open source projects. Wormhole was when you shifted strategies a little bit. You talked about that on JS Party. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming since Socket's a startup as well, that you're keeping this one closer to your chest or is Socket going to be open source? What's the story with Socket itself?
2: Yeah, we're going to open source as much as we can of the application, but I think we need to have some part of this be like a server-side component that, because we're doing this analysis on, you know, the full NPM data set, and it's like 15 terabytes of metadata. And in order to actually like look at the maintainer behavior and, you know, figure out what's going on across like all this metadata, we need... To do some of this on the server with like access to the full data dataset, um, and so we, we're going to make APIs for all this stuff and make it available. But there's just no way you could do that locally. So that's the kind of stuff that we, you know, there's there's not really an easy way to like open source that mm-hmm. and make it actually useful to people. Um, but then there's other stuff that that we can open source that you know you can. You know analyses that you can run on like a package like locally, and we'll try to open source as much of that as we can. But yeah, for now it's uh, it's primarily all this processing happening on the server side, and so it's just you know it's an API we'll provide for free to people. But yeah, it's like the 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 code is Mm -hmm. is proprietary. Are you hiring? Yeah, yeah, definitely hiring. Yeah, yeah, we have a team of (laughs) always. Yeah, we have a team of five right now. It's really cool. It's all open source maintainers. Um, We have really cool like working with really cool people. It's awesome. Yeah, we have just different node maintainers that you might know, Mikola Lysenko, uh, Brett Combs, Alex Morace, who was a, a co-maintainer with me on WebTorrent, and then John Heise, who also uh, you know, d- did uh, WebTorrent and, and uh, Browserify, so yeah, was just like, Pretty cool crew, and yeah, I think collectively we have like a billion npm downloads a month or something crazy like that. (laughs) But you know, npm downloads are all inflated anyway; they're all just like CI bots, CI bots. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) But it still feels good. It sounds good. Yeah, it feels cool. It feels cool, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's how JavaScript developers badge of honor. Is there? npm downloads yeah.
2: number Yeah yeah it's, it, it's it's super it's super funny how uh, how many of those are downloads from CI bots it's probably like a, it's probably I would say it's like 100x inflated probably what do you think or 1000x maybe I
1: think 100x is fair I wouldn't be surprised if it's 1000 but I think 100 is definitely in in the mm-hmm. order of magnitude mm-hmm. 10 would be 10x yeah. is not enough the x doesn't
2: do it <laughs> but still Yeah I think I think even if you if you just publish a package and no one downloads it you you automatically get like like 500 downloads, or, or like, or like something, just from from like all the all the
1: npm just hands them out like Oprah Winfrey. You get 500 downloads. You get, downloads.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you get a download. You get a download. You get
1: a download. Just <laughs> publish a package, you just get 500 <laughs> downloads for free. Yeah, hilarious.
2: No, I mean part of that is us, right? Like we're downloading every package, so like we're adding to that number, right? So yeah, exactly. So our our analysis engine. I mean, it's actually a lot of uh, of worker servers that are running now that are like chugging through all these packages. We're trying to do like what Adam said and and preload, you know, pre-process as much as possible so we can proactively uh, catch issues. Right. Uh, And so we're still scaling that up right now, but so it's like right now it's hybrid. Some of it is Mm -hmm. uh, pre-pre-done, and some of it is lazily.
1: So do you have a stash of cache that you're just burning through as you run these EC2 instances or whatever wherever you're running your? Your back end, are you just spending money right now or what?
2: It's not too bad um, right now. We're spending it's in the thousands of dollars per month <laughs> on hosting, but uh, yeah, it's not it's not like you know it's not like totally going to bankrupt us mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in the short term. <laughs> okay.
0: Could you future cast for us a bit? What would uh, I was going to ask that. What would happen? Let's see if our questions are the same then Jared so you can have your own future cast if it's not. Okay. When you move from JavaScript to other ecosystems, what would happen? To make you feel like you're going the right direction to take on Rust, Go, etc. Python, Python. What do you mean by that? Well, what would happen between now and then? Like, so you've got some some assurance that you're going the right direction. Mm. What would happen with the platform to make you feel like okay, now is the right time to take on the next ecosystem? What would have happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'd rather I'd rather focus on on uh, doing one ecosystem super well and and trying to like. Be the best at JavaScript before we go on and just try to try to do breadth for breadth's sake. You know what I mean? So I think uh, I think like right now we're doing all this stuff in JavaScript that no one else is doing. We can catch all these issues. We're looking at all this stuff in a way that none of the other tools are. But I think there's even more we could do in JavaScript land. Like bef- you know, even before we we move move outwards uh, to other languages like you know there's there's so many uh, things you can do with like taint analysis and kind of analyzing data flows through through these modules you know there's a lot more kind of complicated uh analyses that you could do and some of this stuff is really going to help uh unlock catching even more issues in the future
0: well all software has licenses though right you have you have licenses you have maintainers you got certain things that are sort of like at large open source regardless of ecosystem right maybe there's a way you can sort of carry a certain feature set for everyone but maybe you go you know deep on javascript but like surface on a majority.
2: Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot that is, is is an overlap. I mean, a lot of the stuff around like repository health is is uh, reusable. So s- stuff like you know, is the package maintained? Does it have like a security policy? You know, you know, how are the maintainers doing? Are they active? Are they inactive? You know, kind of what's the health of this thing? Is it published by a trusted source? Uh, you know, d- is it a typo? Like that, all that stuff is like pretty uh, reusable. That's that's for sure. Yeah,
0: that's true. That's why I asked that question because like you know, I I see this as being highly useful and. It does give me a pause to hear you say you want to go deep on one particular ecosystem right now. But I can understand why. I can understand your desires for it. But that, that almost reminds me of like perfection versus progress kind of thing. Mm. Stuff so like progress is sort of like a base layer for all open source and perfection would be going deep on JavaScript. Mm. I, can be wrong.
2: I just I guess what I mean is I, I want to make sure that it's it's useful to people before we move on and try to sort of boil the ocean so it, sure. it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to have the same feature set in all languages like you're totally right it, it's probably better to provide some value to people who write python or, or rust uh, or whatever language rather than just telling them sorry come back later <laughs> but i, I want to make sure that uh what we've shipped in JavaScript is really solid. First, so that's kind of uh, what I meant. Like, we're still taking feedback from people who are using it, and you know, making sure that the signal to noise ratio is right, and that you know, we're still adding these new detections to the GitHub bot. So we still have a little ways to go in JavaScript uh, before we we get into those other languages later this year.
1: I think, if nothing else, it will be a useful operational structure of your business as your engineering team grows to break out based on language support. And so, at a certain point. I mean, you have all JavaScript devs now. And so at a certain point, you could easily say, well, here's our team that works on the NPM ecosystem. Here's our team that works on the Python ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Did you say that that feature where you're detecting like, hey, this package now has I.O. that it didn't have or now has network requests that it didn't have, is that done and baked that's in there or is that something you're working on?
2: That's something that uh, we're working on for the GitHub app. So that's not quite ready yet.
1: Um, I mean, like the stuff like that, I don't think is going for perfection. I think that's going for like, this is how we are different than other people. Like that's super high value and I think that's like depth first versus breadth first, as opposed to, you know, trying to make it perfect. So I I think you're on the right track there, because I think the other stuff is nice and I like it. Especially I I really like just browsing the website and like just vetting different packages because it just makes me feel smarter than I used to be. You know, to be like <laughs> wow, now I know about this. It's kind of like when maybe you're. Your son or daughter, you know, brings home a potential suitor, and uh, <laughs> you're thinking like, okay, what, what's up with this fella or this young woman? Uh, maybe I'll ask their parents. Maybe I will run a background check. You know, maybe I'll uh, see what their stance is on some things. Like, it just feels like a like you can just vet a package and have a better idea in a, in an instant. Mm-hmm. It's super cool. Yeah, but I think that those that ongoing stuff where it's mo- it's as long as it's not too noisy of letting me know like, hey, you have this charting library in your package and all of a sudden it's like calling to a third party. It didn't used to yesterday, but now it does. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that really saves your tail.
2: Yeah. And we have, uh, we found like surprising instances like that already. Like there's a, there's a package called Angular Calendar, which does, it's a calendar widget uh, for, you know, your website to pick, pick a date and it does like a bunch of stuff you wouldn't expect, like shell scripts, file system, network access, uh, install scripts. And uh, when I saw that, I was like, "What is going on? This is a this is a web component. Like, why does it need to like run some shell shell commands on my computer when I install it?" Uh, and so I got really suspicious about it. And the cool thing is, when we find these alerts, we actually link you directly to the line inside the package that triggered it, so you can see what exactly it's doing. Was it legit? And, it was it was uh, it wasn't um, outright malicious, but it it was it was definitely worth pointing out what it was <laughs> doing. So <laughs> it wasn't the best idea ever that kind of thing.
0: yeah, it's 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 it can reduce your trust in the package, really <laughs> more than the security
2: issue. <laughs> I'm really conflicted about it because uh, it it was it, so it uses this thing uh, this dependency that does uh, analytics for the maintainer to figure out who is using their package. Mm. and they're gathering kind of information about the environment that the package is running in, basic in, information about the uh,
1: controversial take. We know homebrew went through a big ordeal when they added that kind of a feature.
2: Exactly, exactly. So it's it's a useful feature for the maintainer. Yeah. But it's a, it's I would say it's a little it's a little bit invasive, and I could see how some people wouldn't want to do that, and so they would want to know you know that there's like an, a way to opt out, or they kind of would want to know that the package may you know may reach out to the network and do you know do this kind of uh, um, of network request. So uh, you know I would say it, you know it, our tool served its purpose. It pointed out this this to us, and we could look at it and decide for ourselves if this if this uh, you know. Calendar widget is something we want to use in our app or not, mm-hmm. um, but but I, I feel conflicted because you know I also want maintainers to kind of you know get paid and to kind of know what, you know who know who use, who's using their package so they can know who to who to reach out to and so it's it's one of these things where every company is going to want to make their own decision about you know do we allow this in our company do we do we want to allow packages to do telemetry and, or or not and and so you know that's something actually down the line that I think we we could support as a as an additional feature is you know setting a policy for your organization like. Do you allow packages to do telemetry? Do you allow you know, uh, packages to, you know, to use install scripts or not? And like enforcing that so that a random developer at your company um, can't necessarily go in and just you know, add something that's against the, the policy of the company. Uh, so uh, it's like a linter for your, for your dependencies, basically.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, can I do my feature cast now? Yeah, is, was mine the same as yours, Jared, or what? No, slightly different, so I'll ask it. Okay. So walk five years down the road turn back and look, you got wormhole and you got socket, which one's bigger,
2: which one's more successful? I think socket. <laughs> Why? Well, I think because it's enterprise software, it's, it's just a lot, it's a lot more straightforward, like what to build next, because you have customers that are telling you what they want. Uh, and so I just think, uh, that that's a really nice thing about, um, mm-hmm. building something for paying customers instead of for, you know, I guess consumers can be paying, but um, it's a little different, you know, when you're going for scale and you're going for mostly free users. Um, so I, I think I just have a little bit more, not a little bit, a lot more <laughs> <laughs> uh, confidence that Socket's going to be, uh, you know, the,
1: the big hit. So let's imagine a world where you're correct and Socket's a big hit. Does Wormhole just, you kill your darling? Does it go by the wayside? Do you open source it? What do you do in that world? Do you keep, keep a team working on it for the love
2: Yeah, I think we're definitely going to keep working on it. I mean, it has, like I said, it has hundreds of thousands of people using it every month, so there's no reason that we would shut it down. It's not that expensive to run because most of the data is peer-to-peer. We store the files for only 24 hours, Uh, you know, the end-to-end encrypted files. We store them for 24 hours, so the data cost is pretty low. Um, So there's not really, there's no reason to not continue running it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if if we were to consider, like, shutting it down or whatever, um, we definitely open source it before we did that. Um, And we might even open-source it anyway, just proactively, uh, because... You know, it's it's a thing. It's useful for people to be able to like run their own instance of it or whatever. Yeah, so what we're we're thinking about it. I mean, it's just a matter of time. Like, someone has to go and do that, and then there's the burden of like pull requests and issues, and then you got to run a community and stuff. So yeah, totally. That's kind of the other thing in the back of my mind is like, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want another thing to maintain another <laughs> part of open source. What's
0: well, about uh how much attention you can give to things happening in your life? You know, at some point you've got a certain amount of RAM to devote mm-hmm. and. uh Focus is uh, a superpower. But
3: mm-hmm.
2: by the way, the other the other thing I wanted to mention, if you're poking around the site, another thing you might want to look at is uh, if you go to the footer, we have this cool uh, page called Removed Packages. I don't know if you saw that. Mm-hmm. I
0: did. I tried to look at it.
2: Yeah, it's a it's so the UI is a little uh, a little iffy on it. But what it what it does, it's really interesting. Is we so remember how I said we save every uh, package that's published to npm uh, as soon as it's published. Well, what, what you can do if you do that is you can actually then see when NPM takes down a package, it actually gives you a nice way to highlight, like, the sketchy packages. So you can you can just see what are they taking down, and then you've already saved a copy of it. And so um, if, you, if you poke through our site there, you can actually see examples of, of malicious packages that NPM's taken down. Um, so this this is stuff that could be have been reported by anybody or maybe you know even they take it down proactively but um you just see the amount of stuff that's on there it's like thousands of things some of it is spam some of it is you know malware some of it is pen testers some of it is just completely obfuscated blobs of code it's like who knows what it does like it's just all kinds of you can find all kinds of interesting stuff poking around through there so yeah if you're curious it's really interesting to just click around and see mm-hmm. uh, see what's in there
1: I'm doing it right now. Sorry, I'm distracted looking at this feature. This is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially for people who are just curious, what's going on? Airbnb dash had a bunch of versions. Now they're all gone. <laughs> it's like a package JSON and a distribution folder, and yeah, some real shady code in there. It
2: looks like okay. If you go into the uh, into the dist yeah folder, you can see uh, what it's doing and. Yeah, it's 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 really it's 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 sometimes you see these ones that have company names in their package names, and that's uh, that's a dependency confusion attack. That's where right, um, that's where a company has their own internal npm packages that they publish to their own private. NPM registry inside their company, but then uh, if they don't register that same name in the public registry, mm. then an attacker can go and publish something there. And then um, if their tools aren't careful, they may accidentally install the public version instead of the private version. And so the attacker can use that to basically get code into you know into the into like the, the Airbnb app in this case. So uh, I don't know if that's exactly what happened here, but um, but usually these company name ones are are something to do with that. Um,
1: yeah, this one is certainly some kind of a Ajax wrapper library that allows you to do some sort of Ajax calls. I don't see anything immediately that's like, oh, and now it's phoning home here or doing anything. But I'm also just scrolling through the code, so mm-hmm. some of these things are harder to see. But yeah, definitely seems like it's uh, attacking what is a real Airbnb library.
2: Oh, I mean, I see, I already see the part where it phone phones home here. It's it's kind that? of it's kind of obfuscated at the bottom of the file. There's a uh, this .fetch line and you can see x XML HTTP request. Uh, I don't know if you click the same version as me because there's multiple versions of this, but it's sending uh, it's sending some data. Yeah, I see a few
1: fetch calls there. I do see the one in line two seventy eight, but now we're getting way deep into the weeds on this file. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Let me pull us out of the weeds a little bit then. So what you're doing with Socket is not prevention; it's awareness, right? Because I'm looking at like the posts you share with us as part of your thesis for pitching this show to us. And it's like colors and faker, breaking thousands of apps, library hijacked it, still user passwords, crypto mining installed. So you're not going to prevent those things. You're going to make the open source users, the, the devs aware of what's happening in their repos. You're not at this point in time, at least preventing that's NPM's job.
2: I, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, so, I mean, obviously it is NPM's job. (laughs) I don't, don't, I'm not disagreeing with that part. No, but I think, I think that, uh, NPM, you know, historically hasn't been able to stop these things before they happen. Uh, so, you know, like, you know, all these attacks, October, November, January—the ones we've talked about—they sure. were all on npm for hours before someone caught them and took them down. And if you look at research that was, you know, published last year, and, you know, in various uh, security conferences, the, they find the average malware is on npm for like 300 days before it's taken down. So, you know, for whatever reason, npm is not taking this stuff down. Quickly, uh, in some some you know examples, they do take it down within hours if it's like a really big package and people find it and all this stuff. But there's so many instances where it lasts on npm for a little bit you know longer than than hours, and so. Uh, I, I would love for them to be able to, to do this stuff faster, and I'd love to work with them. And if we find stuff, we're definitely reporting it to npm and getting getting it taken down for everybody. Sure. Um, but I think like there's still there's definitely a space for socket to actually prevent this stuff because if you if you if you're getting a a dependabot pull request, let's say right, dependabot's trying to update you to some new version uh, that just came out uh, yesterday, right? You know, it's very easy to look at that that PR and say, okay, my test pass and uh, you know, the change log looks pretty good. It looks like they fixed some bugs. Uh, let me go ahead and just click merge, right? That's what I do. That's pretty much what I've always done is I just kind of, you know, hope for the, you know, it's probably fine. Like the, the change log looks good. The test passed. That's like, the system. Yeah. That's the system. Click the green button, right? <laughs> sure. Uh, and, and like what's, what socket could do in that instance is it could tell you, you know, before we click that green button, there's a comment here we posted that says, Hey, you know, this package is now doing X, Y, or Z. And then, you know, that might make you think twice before you click the button if it's something, uh, you know. But
0: that's still awareness, though. Yeah. Right? It still lives on NPM. That's what I mean by awareness. Because my my original question before I even asked it, I answered it in my own head, <laughs> which is, okay, if you've got this list of nefarious things that have happened out there, does a future with Socket in it prevent them? Mm-hmm. And my initial answer is probably no. Just know what you've described, what you're doing so far. It's more of an awareness to developers before they click the green button and, and integrate or... You know, install a package, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a prevention system. Like it, it's going to live on npm. You're not preventing it from existing, but you may have tooling that npm can use as prevention. But so far, your awareness.
2: Yeah, if you, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think, I think we want to get to a place where we're actually sending our insights. To them uh, in real time, so that they can take stuff down, and it's, you don't have to use the Socket GitHub app to be protected. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, you know, you, you you are right that like you know, if we do if we do flag something as being you know an, a suspicious update, and we warn people, the next step is like, well, okay, you know, broadcasting that, broadcasting that information exactly, and and maybe you know maybe you know it, it, we don't want like you know twenty different teams to all get the same comment that says, hey, maybe you should look at this update. You know, we should someone should just look at that update and say, oh no, this is actually bad, and then block it for everyone using the GitHub bot and also get it taken down from NPM uh, in parallel so that's kind of where we need to go to is to be able to not you know make everyone duplicate all this work but in the meantime obviously we um, we want to still give people the tools to, to like to see these suspicious updates and do something about them on their own mm-hmm. but, but there, there is an element eventually we're going to want to like not have everyone duplicating that work and we're going to want to just kind of summarize it for them and say like you know yes it's true that you know this package everyone uses like React is now doing this kind of a A new thing, uh, but like we already looked at it, and it's fine. And so, for most people, they wouldn't want to. We could we could like suppress that uh, information and not bother bother them with it if it's something that we think is expected.
0: Yeah, I almost imagine a world where there's a future with you having a a team that maybe does that on an ecosystem's behalf. You know, maybe one, three, five, a small team. I'm not sure how big the team needs to be. I'm not trying to describe your company or how you should hire (laughs) or grow. But I can imagine at some point, these threats become so important to broadcast and to potentially for prevent where maybe now you're sort of in the awareness arena, but you could skew into the prevention and a more corporate prevention rather than just simply an individual team awareness piece. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where you can have that alert bubble up. Maybe it's to an internal team initially, and you have them do some of their sort of deeper analysis, things you don't want to, this is their noise to deal with that turns into signal for more people. So you can have sort of a higher signal threshold on a user basis because you've got an internal team kind of dealing with the noise potentially.
2: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Well,
0: I'm excited for us. I'm always excited for your, for your mad science activities. Mm-hmm. I think what you've got going on here, it definitely gives me hope. I think what you're doing here certainly gives us, I would say a more, a sound footing on open source, you know, if if open source has one, which it has, and if open source enables, you know, two people to build, you know, a potentially billion dollar company, or in the future the ten people can do that, if that finally comes down to that number, you know, then open source is totally a part of that, mm-hmm. and securing that commons is a great endeavor, and I applaud you for doing it. I'm so glad that you've you know, through all the iterations of your skill set and your career. I mean, I know you don't see yourself like that and maybe you want to self-deprecate, but let me just say, I know Jared shares my feelings too, that we believe in you. We think you're awesome. We think you're doing something cool. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited for Socket in the future. So don't stop. Keep going.
2: Yeah. You guys have always been the most supportive. So, uh, it means a lot to hear that and, and, uh, you know, always get your encouragement and, and support on things. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that we're onto something special with this and uh, definitely want to help make the whole ecosystem more secure for everybody. And I think it's important for the future of open source too. You know, without, without uh, if, if, this, if this stuff keeps accelerating as it has been, um, you know, I think that, you know, the trust will suffer and, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're just gonna, we're gonna get to a, a situation that's untenable eventually. So better to be proactive about that and uh, do what we can now.
1: Well, we talked about how many downloads there are per download right, like that order of magnitude. But think about how many vulnerabilities there are per vulnerability that we know about, right? Mm-hmm. How many exploits there are that we don't know about. And tools like Socket are going to help us know about those things faster, sooner, better. And I agree, it has to happen. It's getting more and more dangerous. The stakes are rising. $20,000 for an exploit that'll get you. That wasn't even an exploit <laughs> for a, a password Yeah. that will get you the keys to the kingdom. I mean... Serious money getting thrown around, state actors. It's never been more serious of a game. So mm-hmm. I'm thankful we have you on our side, for Ross. You're out there <laughs> fighting the good fight for all of us, and I also hope you have lots of success with this. I agree. For us, it's been awesome. Thank you so
0: much.
2: Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. It's been uh, an honor, as always, to be on your shows. Thank you.
0: That's it. This show's done. Thank you for tuning in. Yes, we got the mad scientist back. I always love hearing about Feroz's big ideas. And more importantly, I'm excited about the future and the security of the open source supply chain. I think this is a very ambitious goal for Faraz and the team there at Socket. And I, for one, am going to be paying close attention to this. If you have any thoughts, any feedback, any desires from Socket, Faraz, others involved in this, please let us know in the comments. The link is in the show notes to discuss. And for our Plus Plus subscribers, number one thank you and number two there is a bonus after this show so if you see some extra content there that is why and for those not on the plus plus feed check it out at changelawcom slash plus plus skip the ads and support us directly again changelog.com slash plus plus and last but not least I want to thank our friends and partners at Fastly they get our CDM back you know them you love them we're fast because of them check them out at fastly.com and message Cylinder, those beats are banging. Thank you so much. Loving the new beats. Always, always, always. Breakmaster, you're awesome. Thank you. And that's it for this show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next week.